0: It was the best of times. It was the worst of times.
1: Message, Spot? Space. The final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast Gimme That Star Trek. Its ongoing mission to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before. Welcome to episode 24 of Gimme That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Siskoid, and today we're talking about Marvel's Star Trek comics spinning out from the motion picture, a not-altogether beloved series. But we'll see if we can't ferret out some gems in there, but, but its most notorious lumps of coal as well. To help me in this examination, welcome my guest, Zoom Yukonori from the Done in One Wonders podcast, Wonder Show. Hello, Professor Zoom.
2: Hello how are you
1: I'm good before we get into any of this zoom the listeners need you to prove your Star Trek cred with our usual quiz
2: ah uh, yes this is the one where you um have to ask me what the name of the ship is and everybody knows <laughs> that the ship on Star Trek is called the Star Trek
1: <laughs> uh, well the Star Trek and then you know by next generation it's the Star Trek D that's right <laughs> so let's start with the the big question, which is what does Star Trek mean to you? Where does it begin for you? What Does it have any uh, meaning in your life?
2: Well, of course it does. Um, I, I had first discovered Star Trek by watching repeats of the original series on BBC One in the early 1980s. I was in my late teens uh, at the time. And I found it to be quite a cerebral show. It promoted progressive ideals by having the world of Earth to be a veritable utopia, where prejudice and bigotry was a thing of the distant past. Uh, with most of the conflict being between the Earthans and the other races, whether portrayed by the major conflict of the episode or just those little friendly barbs of Dr. McCoy and Spock taking shots at each other's species. And, of course, every episode would feature a morality play that would explore some aspect of social injustice, usually. Um, And, of course, a lot of television programs at the time would weave in these morality plays, but I found the original Star Trek series to be rather unique in that, well, one, it had a very entertaining way of presenting them with futuristic and interplanetary allegories um, and two in in many cases the show actually made me think more about the social injustice that was happening in society and not just, American 1960s, but also the British 1980s when I was watching this show. Um, And that's rather than the simple ham-fisted, you know, this is the lesson of the episode you should walk away with type of conclusion that that other uh, television series tended to do. Well, at least, you know, for Star Trek in the most part, sometimes it does get a little heavy-handed. I will admit, um, but I believe that Star Trek shines uh, when it is a program that makes me think more about the world and what we can do to make it better for everyone, rather than just being a slam bang science fiction action show that uses cowboy diplomacy to resolve a conflict with the Klingons. Um, I will admit that every iteration of Star Trek is guilty of that. At one time or another, but there seem to be very few instances of this in the original series and much more of it in the more recent iterations, I feel.
1: Probably a question of special effects. if You know, if you can't show it, then you don't really do it and you have to go another way, perhaps a more cerebral way, a, more, a talky way, you know.
2: Yeah, talk is cheap.
1: <laughs> um, literally. Literally. What is your favorite iteration of the show, then? Is it the original series?
2: Well, I started with the original series, and I, and I did enjoy the charm of it. I, I would have to say that, actually, The the Next Generation is my favorite. It had more sophistication. It had more expanded characterization. I mean, the original series seemed to focus on Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as the principal characters, and they had the most characterization. And while there were other notable characters like Uhura and Chekhov and Scotty that, that are quite memorable... They were not given as much dimension on the original series, in my opinion, whereas in the next generation, they could have fallen into that trap, too, and, and focus solely on Captain Picard, Will Riker, and, and Data, who seem to be the initial standout characters of the show, but... Um, the series would actually feature episodes that were devoted to Geordie LaForge or Deanna Troy or Dr. Crusher. Even Transporter Chief O'Brien had a spotlight episode that delved into his past and gave me a greater sense of his character. And I'm actually glad they were able to do more with him uh, in the later Deep Space Nine series, because I, I find Cole Meany to be a very wonderful actor. The Next Generation series was was able to have a crew of several well-rounded characters, and yet it still managed to weave in that morality play and, and talk about present-day social issues with almost every episode. I, and I think that later iterations of the series seem to follow that model that The Next Generation had set, so uh, that's why The Next Generation is my favorite.
1: Not only did, did Next Gen spawn all these later shows... Of Star Trek, but a lot of science fiction from that era seemed to follow that model. Sea Quest and, and whatnot all had this sort of setup, this crew setup.
2: Yeah, that's right. And and it, it was, I have to admit, you know, the, the first season and the, and much of the second season of The Next Generation is very difficult for me to rewatch. Uh, because I can clearly see that the actors and, and, and even the series itself was trying to find its way so to speak but you know i think on se- season 3 the series had a firm grasp of direction and i think that's where all the imitators started to come in cuz it's like okay they figured it out now now we don't have to do all that all that legwork
1: there's the formula there's a winning formula yes that's right so what's your favorite character from that iter- well not necessarily from that iteration what's your favorite character in all of star trek did you already answer it by mentioning call maybe
2: um actually no i didn't but i did i did like his character but but you know there, there are so many compelling com- characters in all the star trek series it's hard to narrow it down to just one But I've always found myself drawn to those outsider characters. And I know you talked about this on your show before, but these are the characters that are not human or not quite human that serve to comment on the human condition and thus explore the good and bad points of humanity. This would be the Spock of the original series and Data in the Next Generation and Odo on Deep Space Nine and, and the Holographic Doctor on Voyager, for example, And and among these, I would have to say that data is actually my favorite. As an android, he had that naivete in his commentary about humanity that that truly made me stop and think about the irrationality of some commonplace human behaviors, where such observations would usually come off as more as a humorous insult when a similar, uh, when it's delivered by say Spock or or Odo or the doctor. And, And it also helped that Brent Spiner, was such an amazing character actor. I actually really like those episodes that give Mr. Spiner an opportunity to play different characters, whether it's his twin android lore or his creator, Dr. Noonan Sung. There was that episode, The Schizoid Man, where, where Data was possessed by Ira Graves or that alien archive in masks. Um, or when he's replicated in that holodeck simulation of, of Deadwood. Um, in Warf and Alexander's little cowboy holographic game, and and in a fistful of datas.
1: Right, and a n- number of other songs when we got into like the the prequel shows.
2: And yes, that's right.
1: Yeah, he's he's been a constant. So, what's your favorite alien species? That's our last question.
2: Okay, I, hmm. that was a hard one. That was a hard one to try and figure out. I would have to say the Cardassians are my favorite Um, or at least they're the most compelling to me.
1: I like that answer
2: from, from their first appearance in, in the next generation episode, the wounded, which was that chief O'Brien episode I had alluded to earlier. I I initially found the, the Cardassians to be very compelling or, or should I say I found Cardassian Golmaset very compelling because he, he was an adversary that was essentially an intellectual match for Captain Picard. Uh, Gol-Masset conveyed this quiet diplomacy, which just oozed that sinister smugness, you know, and, and, and I knew from that end line of Picard where he's like, we'll be watching that I had not seen the last of them. And, and of course, throughout later episodes of Next Gen and throughout all of Deep Space Nine, this, this alien culture was explored with so much depth. And at the same time, uh, reflecting much of the ugly side of humanity. In particular, there was a, it featured them with torture, uh, colonialism, slavery, military statism. So I kind of found them to be an obvious cautionary tale of where humanity will end up if we continue down those roads. But the Trek series also showed us Cardassian artists and scientists and poets and philosophers, as well as those among their people that protested the military regime. So it was very three-dimensional. They also showed a very strong, if not sometimes misguided, f- value for family. So they're not a simple one-note sinister species like like many of the other adversaries of the Federation.
1: Yeah, Deep Space Nine gave us that opportunity to to follow a, a species over, not just like from an episode, you know, a few episodes or through one character, but seeing a lot of characters from that culture.
2: Yes, that's right. And, and they were all very compelling. I haven't met a Cardassian I didn't like. Or, or at least didn't like to hate. Let's put it that way.
1: So you you've proven your cred. I think.
2: Oh well, thank you. Wonderful. <laughs> I, I, I I I don't have to leave now. I can stay. You're not going to ship me out of the out of the airlock. Good.
1: No, no, no. It doesn't matter how you came to the show, so long as you have something to contribute. And in this case, uh, we're talking about Marvel's motion picture era comics. Uh, though the company would get. To publish some pretty fun Trek series in the 90s. Today we're only looking at the very first Star Trek Monthly, which started in 1979 with a three-issue reprint of their motion picture adaptation, uh, which originally was in Marvel Super Special number 15. So in true Marvel tie-in comic tradition, you start with an adaptation and then you create new adventures. It lasts 18 issues, uh, set in that drab pastel era because uh, nothing says comics like gray uniforms.
2: Gray pajama
1: uniforms. Notably, Marvel's license from Paramount prohibited them from using concepts introduced in the original series. So only concepts seen in the movie <laughs> were eligible. Uh, although they sort of cheated now and then. Is that why it had problems connecting with audiences and maybe even with writers? Or is the TMP era just the worst for these characters? We'll look at the bad. We'll look at the good, but Zoom, initial thoughts on the series as a whole. Is, is this something you read at the time?
2: Well, not at the time. I actually first discovered this Marvel Comics Trek series in the late 1990s. Um, I was working in Southeast Asia at the time, and I discovered that there were a few comic book stores there, and most of them had back issues that only went as far back as the early 1990s. Uh, because it was essentially unstoled stock, but, but there was one in Pataling Jaya, Malaysia that had comics that went as far back as the mid-1970s. And this shop used to have those books behind the counter at a more premium price. But after a while, those books started to make their way into the ringgit bin. And this is a, a Malaysian ringgit equated to about 30 US cents, just so you know. But they, they made their way into the ringgit bin so the shop could move the inventory out. So uh and I found almost the entire set. It was it was essentially all but the first four issues. So that I think I guess that kinda of tells you how much that series was held in, in, in regard at that time.
1: I'm sure it's not worth much more (laughs) here and now. Uh, Although issues might be a little harder to come by because whatever print runs, does it deserve its reputation? You think?
2: Well, you know there were a number of pretty good stories in there. I think I I don't know if you want me to cite some certain examples, but uh, there there was there was one which had those aliens that could see both the past and the future at once. I thought that was a that was an interesting one. Uh, There was another one that reenacted the Salem witch trials on another planet, which kind of reminded me of those. Um, those other types of, of early um, uh, classic Star Trek episodes. I think one we're going to talk about today is, is one that, one of my favorites. And there was one that was actually written by Alan Brennert.
1: Right, Rob Kelly's Man Crush. Uh, <laughs> well, it was it was plotted. It, I believe
2: it was written by Martin Basco, yeah. but
1: Martin um, Basco still scripted it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He did the bulk of the series. Although uh, you know, a lot of recognizable names. Almost no. I don't think there are any unrecognizable names as far as writers go on mm-hmm. this series. We had uh, uh, Mike Barr. We had Marv Wolfman. We had uh, Tom DeFalco, Michael Fleischer, J.M. Dematteis, and we'll talk about his story later. So a lot of names name writers and uh, some name artists as well. Al Milgram drew a number of uh, of the of issues. Yep. Uh, Luke McDonald very early in his career.
2: Very early.
1: <laughs> yeah, long before Suicide Squad and or just League of America. Right. So, uh, uh, Joe Berzowski, I mean, you know, workhorse, let's call him. Yes. But um, yeah, but recognizable names on this series. Mm-hmm. I, You know, I reviewed the whole thing uh, when I did my big Star Trek project where I reviewed all the – on my blog, you know. I reviewed every episode. I reviewed uh, every comic book. Talk about a workhorse. It took me three years doing it daily. Uh, that series, I thought – I knew the reputation was bad. But, you know, it's not great. But mostly when it fails, it's just kind of dull. Uh, you know, dull little one-offs. But mm. um, not all that different from the dull little one-offs in the Gold Key series um, <laughs> oh, from earlier.
2: Those. Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
1: well, I, I'm saying when it when it dips, you know, into the, the low points. And right. even the high points are still fun, interesting stories with nice art. That's where Gold Key and Marvel, when they hit their peaks... But with 18 issues, really only 15 issues that were new, True. uh, that weren't the adaptation. And most of them one-offs. I think there's like a one, the, the, the first story was a two-parter. And otherwise it was all one-offs, which is one of the reasons that you're guesting today on this, because, uh, you're the one-off wonder specialist.
2: Yes, there we go. One is a done-in-one wonder. One is a not. <laughs>
1: well we wonder how it made it to the page
2: (laughs) there we go it is definitely a wonderment let's put it that way
1: yeah because the series had some interesting things to to, to do and say, but mostly, uh, you know, it sort of hovered in the middle there somewhere. Yeah. And um, sometimes it did some weird things. You know, you know, Spock. Martin Pasco liked to make Spock super powerful. He had like telepathy tricks, yes. like uh, you know, teaching the crew a, a, a new language using mind fusion and <laughs> stuff like that. Tracking Klingons telepathically. I mean, and he was also a barbarian in one in one issue. Well, almost. He's he's a barbarian on the cover, but then the story <laughs> right. doesn't follow through. No. So
2: that that was a bait and switch, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> McCoy almost becomes a barbarian, I guess, in that. Yes, uh, but <laughs> but not quite. So there are some weird things going on, and because it, they change writers so much, uh, there wasn't like a cohesive. Uh, you know, characterization or, so some of the stories are, are good. Some of the stories are not so good. Today we're going to look at. A bad story. Let's let's call it the the nadir of the series, <laughs> oh my. so people say. But I think yes. it's it's got a silliness that that makes it still entertaining.
2: It's charmingly goofy.
1: Yeah, and and not that far off from some animated series episodes,
2: mm-hmm. for example. Yes, they definitely take advantage of the medium to do something that the television show would not have been able to do on its budget.
1: And if it had done it. Uh, Yeah, it would have been... um, So we'll get into that, and then we'll start with that one, and then we'll get to an example of a good story. So you'll get the two ends of the spectrum.
2: But not necessarily extreme ends.
1: I I think in the the case of the bad one, I think it is probably the worst.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So we're in for a good time.
1: (laughs) Well, let's discuss each of these issues. So this one is... um, there's No Space Like Gnomes, is the name of it, uh, from Star Trek number 16, October 1981, by Martin Pasco, writer Luke MacDonald, uh, Jean Day, and Sal Trapani, artists. And there's a bunch of artists on this, um, or two inkers, I guess. Essentially, here's the plot. The Enterprise visits the colony of Valerian, I guess named after the French comic, mm. and finds it missing. Uh, instead... Subverbal trolls are on the prowl, and they abduct Chekhov's Endorian girlfriend. During the abduction, an invisible beam strikes down one of the trolls, which McCoy gets to examine. The creature seems to be sick, so Kirk orders McCoy back to the ship with his new patient to learn more. The attack persists until tiny garden gnomes pop out of the ground with weapons and drive off the trolls. Unbeknownst to Kirk, the security officer left at the beaming site was waylaid by such gnomes, although these were much bigger Uh, goblin forms, as we get to know. Mm. Back on the ship... McCoy has ascertained that the creature was once human and is currently shrinking. Now, the gnomes tell the landing party their troubles with the trolls, but these prove to be untrustworthy when, in their goblin forms, they steal away in a supply crate, get themselves beamed to the Enterprise, and attack the crew, bestriding large bats. They are defeated after some trouble, but Scotty notices they are keen on keeping their pointy hats on. (laughs) Uh, But, in fact, when they lose them, they revert to gnome form. So... Chekhov's girlfriend is rescued, but she's fine, and she's been trying to communicate with the trolls, some of which appear to be transformed Andorians. McCoy finds a cure for the troll virus and beams down to restore the colonists. Kirk then confronts the gnomes, whose race may well have inspired English folklore, blaming their misdeeds on goblin races and such. Their world met with a calamity long ago, and they just want to be left alone. They use their magic to make trees attack the landing party, but Kirk uses one of their hats to turn the tables (laughs) with his own magic tricks. In the end everyone leaves Valerian forever. So the gnomes have won. <laughs> <You know. laughs>
0: yes,
2: but there are only four of them.
1: In all, I guess really they really they you know, they met with catastrophic circumstances before getting there we get that that's their thing uh, and that you know very often colonists th- this is the uh, the whole idea behind colonialism you mm-hmm. not necessarily care if it's somebody else's land so these guys instead of talking to the colonists and finding out that the prime directive might very well have prevented them from staying do all these tricks like uh but i mean it's there's a lot of nonsense here in the plot But um, basically, one of the things that bugs me is that they use matter manipulation Mm -hmm. to create environments and change forms but they induced some sort of virus into the colony because there's a somehow...
2: Yeah, uh, it wasn't quite clear because it was like this last minute addition at the end of the story where Spock said, well, their caps don't work on organic matter, so it, just, it was a virus that was turning the colonists into trolls. And it was like, well, it, it didn't really say who created the virus.
1: So is this virus already just in the environment?
2: Yeah, I don't know.
1: <laughs> and how does McCoy... You know, McCoy just finds a a cure super quick and it seems to me like, I don't know, the cure should have come from the gnomes Maybe but it if,
2: if if the gnomes were the ones that created it, which I think Kirk accused them of of doing, and they didn't deny it, but I don't know if they really confirmed it either. So it was a little confusing, and it was kind of spoiling some things too. It was almost like revealing the the surprise that they were the colonists, bef- you know, right from the very beginning.
1: Yeah, I think the the landing party is a bit slow on the uptake. We, we know well before, yes, perhaps through no fault of their own. Uh, and I mean, you've got the Endorian girlfriend who is not much more than a scared damsel in distress at least at first Mm. um her culture doesn't come into it much except that she recognizes the behavior of other and but you know she just seems like a normal she could be an earth girl any girlfriend of chekhov's that we've never seen before and we'll never see again
2: yeah well i i just gotta say that i'm surprised the creator credits actually use their real names and not a gnome de plume There are gnomes at the heart of this story, or rather should we say the gnome is where the heart is
1: bad puns uh it ends on a terrible pun.
2: you see what I was leading to here
1: yeah 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 the what is the the, the last the, the, the that last pun uh, after all that's why we're in space to go where gnome men have gone before that's the
0: gnome
2: my goodness. <laughs>
1: but this is in the tradition of star Trek, you know, but it's just like one step too far because it, it is the, uh, you know, finding Apollo on a planet. It is
2: right. Or, or, or those classic Trek episodes in which an aspect of earth culture is imprinted on an alien planet, the Nazi Germany planet of echoes or the Chicago mob planet of Sigma Iosha two. And this time we have the garden gnome planet of Valerian.
1: Right. And the, the cartoon series did a lot of this as well. You, Aztec planet with the inspiration for Aztec, uh, mythology right right uh or that the one i find objectionable is the one where they meet satan uh, uh, on yes. a planet where you can use magic <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's, it's the same idea
2: right right but at least like those episodes you know martin pascoe did provide a clever star trekish explanation for the gnome's presence as well as as the kumwalden's appearance similar to the legendary gnomes of earth because it was it was stated that both groups of gnomes were descendants of the same alien race of what were essentially interplanetary nomads
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> oh man the gift that keeps on giving
2: <laughs> uh. gnome pun intended no.
1: <laughs> Uh, and I'm sure – actually, I'm sure your jokes are better than those Gnome movies. I refuse to see any of the Gnome movies, but um, anything with CG characters that do butt dancing, that's – Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't need any Gnomeo and Juliet um, stuff.
2: We we talked about the, the the early generation, but I couldn't help but draw some similarities to this story and a couple of Next Generation episodes, namely the, the third season episode, The Survivors, about the very powerful being that just wanted to be mm-hmm. left alone – and, yeah, and, that's there, right. and there was a fourth season episode called Identity Crisis, which actually involved, um, col- uh, not colonists, but I think people that just went down on a landing party that ended up being transformed into the alien creatures of the planet. I don't know whether these episodes were inspired in part by this comic book, but somehow I doubt it.
1: People can't see me shaking my head, but it happens no. every time. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he's tapping into tropes, Star Trek tropes that have been used and will be used again. This is all part of the Star Trek DNA it's just the focus you know on the, <laughs> the garden gnomes or i mean <laughs> right. creatures that look like garden gnomes i think that's the problem
2: right that, that that's true and, and even the goblin ones i mean the, the goblin gnomes that stowed away in the supply boxes and disabled the enterprise they were surprisingly brutal in their attack and they were taken very very seriously and i suppose that made up for the ridiculous visuals of said attack you know one could say that they literally showed gnome mercy no more puns honest.
1: Well yeah because we're gonna move on is what's gonna happen. <laughs> would you have any other nominees as far as worst of this series?
2: No, I have no other nominees.
1: You know I keep walking into it. just, like, <laughs> just there's this wall and I keep ramming myself into it. Uh, but uh, for me I, I, I would also nominate issue 14 We are dying Egypt dying Ah
2: uh, yes, that's another one of those um, Star Trek meets Apollo type of thing.
1: Yeah, it, well, it's basically all depending on how much you like uh, the the episode with Key Rock where, you know, Kirk is a Native American god. It's the same story, except he's a pharaoh, so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that one's kind of, that one I think is dodgy. Okay, well, let's look at the good, Let's a bit
2: good one, yes.
1: Yes. Uh, will you do the honors?
2: Oh, well, thank you, sir. Next up is, is Star Trek issue 18, which is actually the last comic book of the series. It's entitled A Thousand Deaths. Uh, the writer is J.M.D. Mateus. Uh, the artists are Joe Brozowski and Saul Trapini. And, uh, the editor is Al Milgram. Now, according to the cover, this comic book is a special last issue collector's item, which is true in regards to it being the last issue and I being a collector and this issue being an item that I own. <laughs> Now, of course, the cover itself is a, middle, is a little misleading. I mean, the scene does take place in the story very briefly, but it does not really hint at what the story is about. Um, it's just Kirk and Spock facing each other with this little energy trend roll between, between their foreheads, and it says a meeting of the minds. Um, but then again, it does visually portray a connection between Kirk and Spock, which is important to the story, which I will start going into right now. The story begins with Captain Kirk being interrupted in the middle of his trampoline fitness routine by an urgent call from Mr. Spock informing the captain about a bogey vessel that had approached them at warp 17 on an intercept course and is now blocking their path, which is very easy to do because the vessel is 20.6 times the size of the planet Earth. Oh, and it looks like a bunch of enormous kitchen appliances have just been mashed together into a ball. Ship analysis indicates that the ship's hull is constructed of an unknown metal and it possesses massive computer banks that are miles deep and there are millions of life signs that are all very faint. Uhura tries to hail the ship and the response is audio static and then the appearance of Surprint energy probes that scan the bridge crew and eventually lock on Kirk and Spock painfully connecting their minds together to harken back to the cover image, and then transporting the two senior Starfleet officers off the bridge to... somewhere within that massive alien vessel. In addition, the vessel had also locked the Enterprise itself in a tractor beam so the ship could not move. Now, Kirk and Spock find themselves somewhere within that massive ship and they stand before a huge blue human-esque robot that's six meters tall the robot introduces itself as the sustainer and the vessel is a world ship Solopses. the sustainer brought the intrepid duo aboard because it required their assistance which the sustainer vaguely described as requiring one of them to die there is no further explanation as the sustainer basically puts kirk and spock through three dangerous trials The first is an ancient pirate ship battle simulation in which Kirk sacrifices his life to save Spock, but then the Sustainer revives the deceased Kirk because this technological wonder has the means to control life and death, and then puts them through another trial, in which Spock sacrifices himself to save Kirk from a fatal fall. And of course Spock is then revived. In the third trial, the Sustainer threatens to destroy the Enterprise trapped in the tracker beam unless either Kirk or Spock is willing to face death once again, and this time he would not be erected. Spock immediately immobilizes Kirk with the Vulcan nerve pinch and offers himself to to be essentially smashed to death by the sustainer's huge metallic fist. Kirk, however, somehow manages to overcome the pinch and moves Spock out of the way, intending to take the blow himself, and then the robot stops and instead picks up Kirk and Spock and carries them to another area of the ship which is called the Chamber of Sustainment, where the millions of faint life signs were located. These were the last survivors of the planet Solapsis. They're a race called the Lazae Izurk resting in individual suspended animation pods. At last, the sustainer can explain everything that's been going on. The Lise et were a brilliant, technologically advanced race, except they were all morally bankrupt and completely self-centered, and therefore there was much conflict, and they ended up ravaging their planet and destroying billions of their own lives. The survivors, in a rare display of mutual aid, managed to work together to create the worldship and the sustainer robot to run it in search of a new world but the sustainer knew that this race could not survive on any world unless they had an innate sense of selflessness and compassion so basically by forcing Kirk and Spock to sacrifice their lives selflessly a number of times the sustainer now has the means to transmit that direct experience of selflessness emotion into the leze psyche so they can avoid a second holocaust once they're revived on a new world. The Sassander then releases the officers and the Enterprise, which then leave a species with the hope of a better tomorrow.
1: So. 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 <laughs> uh, clearly a, a J.M. Demetrius script no yes. real villain, you know, there's purple prose, yes. uh, it's a metaphysical story and, uh, you know, references to philosophy, because, what is the name of the planet? Solopsis?
2: Yes, Solopsis.
1: So, from Solopsisism, the, you know, the viewer theory that the self is all that can be known to exist. Yes,
2: exactly. <laughs> uh,
1: although, I, I'm not sure I get if there's a pun to the, the name of the aliens. The, oh, the, Lize, the yeah exerque It sounds like it's supposed to be a pun, but I I don't know what it is.
2: It sounds like a French pun, sir. If you don't get it, then obviously it's above our heads.
1: Which happens. Uh, with Demetrius, for sure. So, uh, what did you think of this story? Obviously, you, you picked it. You, you thought I, it was like one of the better examples. It
2: was a better example. This, this is one I, I actually remember vividly because it, it felt more like a classic original series Trek episode than a lot of the other stories do. And, and I especially liked how this story basically paid tribute to the friendship between Kirk and Spock. And, and I would like to believe that was the intent of the whole Meeting of the Minds cover image at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I also like that the story would actually take a moment to have Spock and Kirk react to the other's death, uh, as well as react to the notion that they each had died and was restored back to life. They actually, you know, it wasn't like, oh, well, well we're back. Okay. You know, they, they actually took a, a, a few panels to have that emotional reaction, which kind of touched me, too. I, I would say that the artwork is very serviceable. It tells the story, and but most of the panels were very mid-level camera angle, you know, save for a few dynamic establishing shots of the sustainer robot and the, and the um, solipses. The The comic medium was utilized to create that robot and the world ship set pieces that would have otherwise been impossible to do on a TV budget at the time.
1: You're talking about the art. Uh, this is Joe and um, several shows on this network have uh, talked about his swipes
2: yes and there are evidence of that oh yes (laughs) Uh,
1: because there's a whole sequence the whole I'm gonna call it a holodeck sequence Uh, (laughs) the the first time Kirk dies you know Uh, it's on a pirate ship yes and there are direct swipes from a gold key story uh, with space pirates yes the the characters are drawn exactly uh you know dressed the same, and there, I think there's like a direct swipe in there, mm-hmm. um so good old Joe Brozowski, <laughs> cutting corners uh, as he is wont to do, uh but yeah, I agree that the story is a strong one it is a cerebral story and yet it's an emotional story, so it fits mm-hmm. the original series for sure, yeah, and it even fits the motion picture because the motion picture has that uh, I'm not a big fan of the motion picture as. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've made clear before. Uh, I'm no Gene Hendricks. Understand Yeah, but there is one moment that I dearly love in it, and it's the moment after Spock uh, goes into V'ger's database, flies around, kind of gets lost, and when they get him back, he has this impression of what, you know, he mind melds with V'ger, and the the impression that he got is that the one thing V'ger is missing is, let's call it human contact. Right. And the the way he shows that to Kirk. You know, he grabs Kirk's hand and it's like a very emotional moment for Spock. It's their friendship right there in the middle of the movie. Um so this trades on that and it also it's kind of um almost creepy, but it prefigures Spock's death in the next film.
2: That's right, it does.
1: Because Spock dies like twice and almost three times. <laughs> Uh, in this, or he, you know, yes. he chooses death, so it prefigures his decision. So if we we take this as a part of the canon,
2: yes, it did, it does, and and it wasn't quite a thousand deaths as as the title, uh, no, was saying, but but they did they did actually make a reference to that in the actual dialogue from the sustainer. He mentioned that they would be willing to die a thousand deaths.
1: But yeah, if this is part of the canon, then we can almost say, well, this is the decision Spock would make if he were faced with the. No win scenario. Right. And in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, he does exactly that.
2: Yeah. And I think Kirk had a very similar reaction in this, uh, in this comic book that, that he does at the end of, of Star Trek II as well.
1: Correct. Yeah. Exactly.
2: I was just going to say the, the other thing I liked about this story and, and, um, was, was just that there was this big mystery throughout and it wasn't very clear. It wasn't telegraphed like the gnomes story. Which also had a mystery, but we already figured it out by page three. You know, this one, it was like, what, what is going on? You know, I, I, I was completely at the edge of my seat throughout the whole story.
1: It feels like we haven't seen this story before, right? Uh, and at the same time, it trades on other trope, you know, Star Trek tropes like the empath, maybe, mm-hmm. where, where aliens, or even the cage, you know, aliens testing our heroes. And and sort of dissecting or using or using as an example, their human traits, What, what is great about the human spirit, right to influence their culture, or, you know, and they have a name for this, this friendship that they have, I can't pronounce it because I don't, you know, it's mentioned in the motion picture, I think but I don't remember how it's supposed to be pronounced. There's too many apostrophes in there, but it's (laughs) Phyla or, you know, it's T-H apostrophe Y apostrophe Yeah.
2: Yes, where they're friends and brothers, yes.
1: Friends and brothers. Mm -hmm. And the, I mention it because when I reviewed this comic originally, uh, somebody, a commenter found the cover somewhat homoerotic, let's say, or at least it seemed romantic <laughs> because the two faces are coming close together. Uh, okay. It played into the... Well, it played into the Spock slash Vic phenomenon, let's say. All right. Uh, and yeah, the sort of corroborating evidence is that the motion picture novelization by Roddenberry himself, uh, which I do own, also gives a more romantic connotation to the word Thyla, mm. So that it can also be... A romantic bond,
2: but it's a bromantic
1: bond. <laughs> In their case, it's romantic. <laughs> so, uh, so for people who like the the slashfic I- idea, well, you can. File it up, you know whatever whatever you want to do, it's in there. Uh, it's um, it's in there somewhere in the in the canon.
2: Whatever works for them.
1: Are there? Uh, you mentioned a number of also good stories from uh, this run. And I and I was like doing a sort of a, a just a survey of the the issues, and uh, despite its reputation. You know, I could only name two really bad stories, mm-hmm. and uh, I found, you know, I, I found, oh, well, I, I might mention this one as a good one, or this one, or this one, as you did at the top of the discussion. So, uh, you know, for me, actually, you named my favorite. My favorite of the lot is The Long Night's Dawn by Mike Barr, issue 17. Uh, art by Ed Hannigan. Uh, it's got a Walt Simonson cover, and it's the it's the one with the uh, the witch trials. It's the one with the Inquisition, and that one doesn't telegraph its ending either. And it's it's actually a re- really well produced story about accidental and then then more direct intervention in a, a primitive society. And later Trek would also do this kind of story. Yes, uh, whether it's uh, Thine Own Self with Data. Uh, landing with uh, radioactive uh, elements on a planet, or right,
2: and poisoning everybody. Yes,
1: <laughs> it's a similar story.
2: Yes, yes, it is. That that was one that that kind of stood out to me as another one that that was very similar to to uh, a classic Trek episode as well. As we said, there really aren't any. There there are only very few bad stories, and and most of the other ones are just. I mean, there are some good ones. There are some bad. The two bad ones, and then there's the others are just. They're a little intriguing here and there, they're not quite perfect, and some are just kind of there. And that's kind of like the original series of Star Trek itself, too. You know, there are some episodes that are really good, and some episodes that are not, and then there are some that are just passable.
1: Uh, and this isn't a series that's too far away from what Gold Key was doing, in the sense that it's all one-offs, and many of right. them are kind of... Science fantasy more than science fiction, you yeah, know?
2: Yeah, especially when you have Dracula in one of them.
1: <laughs> There's a scientific explanation, of but course yeah, that there one.
2: Is. It's scientific Dracula, yes.
1: <laughs> of course, run by Klingons. And, <laughs> uh,. <laughs> And it's got, I mean, that, that issue is Captain Kirk fighting Frankenstein's monster. Mm-hmm. So let's not uh, dismiss it. It's no. by Marv Wolfman, who has every right to use Dracula. And... <laughs>
0: yeah, so
2: we got a Wolfman and the... No, I'm sorry. That was terrible.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was always the joke back in the Tomb of Dracula days, right? Yes, it was. The wolfman was writing Dracula.
2: Yeah, it, t- it takes it takes a Wolfman to write a good Dracula story.
1: Right. And in the tradition of Lincoln in space, big hand in space, or whatever... Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's, it's got a haunted house floating in space. So, <laughs> I mean, it sounds silly, but it's not a bad opening because that's the first story. That's no. uh, issue issue four. No. That's not a bad bad opening. It's not a great ending in the second <laughs> issue because uh, Marv Wolfman gives you know the baton away to Mike Barr, and I don't think Barr liked the setup because <laughs> because he undoes everything. Right. This is an enjoyable little slice of Trek, uh, and. Uh, kind of unique, uh, well, unique in the sense that uh, this is the end of an era because after this is canceled, there's a, a two year wait and then we get, DC gets a license and is doing post uh, Star Trek 2 stories. And from then on, though there are one shots here and there, one offs, most of the time it's a continuing story. You know, it, it becomes, it's like a monthly grind like every other, like superhero comics, you know. Um, one story following into the next and multi part stories. And so this is the end of the Star Trek one offs, really.
2: Yes. All the Done and One wonders are done.
1: <laughs> well, not all. <laughs> most. <laughs> yeah, most. But yeah, the, 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 just the, the, the format of the series that to come will be continuing serials. Yes. They will.
2: And then they'll move on to the next generation and Deep Space Nine and all of those, too.
1: Right. And Marvel will get back the license and we'll be doing some... I'm expecting to do some shows later on. I don't want to do too many comic book shows a year, you know, because it's this this is my one show that's not about comics. But there are uh, some very interesting like spin-off series the starfleet academy for example or showing the uh the, the Christopher Pike's voyages early mm-hmm. on so uh there'll be some some series that Marvel will be doing later uh, that are much more beloved than this one, but yeah. I think this one, this one's not as bad as people say, and it, it's worth rediscovering.
2: Well, you know, the, this is like the closest thing we get to Star Trek Phase Two, I believe.
1: All right, that's that's a good point. Yeah,
2: and of course that series never got off the ground, so maybe that also added to the reputation. Perhaps I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's got the reputation that the motion picture does, you ah. because it, it, I mean <laughs> it's from that era, right? And that era, that, that movie didn't give us much to work with, uh, in a sense, you know, it's like all the new characters were killed off. So (laughs) you you can't even explore, uh, Deckard and, and, uh, So, you know, it's not like, but if you look at the, the first DC series, it's got Savick in there, you know, you've got some new characters that you can use, right? Maybe it's the timing. The timing was, was bad for this to be a runaway hit, but, uh, like we said, it's got some interesting stuff by people you know and people you love. Right on, on the creative chores. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Zoom, for uh, spending this this hour f- with me. Sure. Um, Thanks for
2: having me, despite my uh, my level of cred.
1: No, no level of cred is wrong. <laughs> 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 well, let's say that we're close to a uh, new series of uh, Done in One Wonders.
2: Yes, it's yeah. it's gonna it's gonna the season two will premiere on, on September seventh.
1: But Zoom. The universe was destroyed in the first series.
2: That's right. And I have been busy putting it back together again.
1: (laughs) Uh, It's more like, uh, yeah, you're like the Doctor Who of the podcasting set. Universe is destroyed at the end of every series. and
2: I'm still here. Even even Elrond pointed out that we are still here. So, you know, some, something must have happened. But how? You'll find out on September 7th.
1: There you go. That's when it starts uh, in just a month. Anywhere else people can find you on the internets that might be interesting?
2: Interesting. Well, um, I do make some occasional contributions to... Um, comic book resources the line it is drawn weekly sketch challenge feature I also have a blog called Omelette au Fromage just search for my name on Google you can find it I haven't done any posts on there lately, but you know the the main reason I did that blog was for for people who don't know me to get to know me, and for people who do know me to get to know me a little better. So none of those none of those posts are old
1: in that sense. Yeah. Yes. Well, seeing as the transporter was a little finicky in the TMP era, Zoom, uh, it's your choice whether you want to use them to leave or to take a shuttle.
2: <laughs> I am. F- feeling a little bit dr mccoy right now i'm gonna i'm gonna take the shuttle
1: <laughs> okay uh, what well, i'll stick around in any case for subspace transmissions that's star trek news and your feedback on our previous episode thanks again zoom
0: thank you again it began with the origin of his comic book fandom this is the very first comic book i have ever read and also ignited the spark of my comic book collecting over the course of a 1974 weekend Professor Zoom Yukonori led an ongoing expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. Balance of Power, Have Horse,
2: Will Fly, Solomon Grundy, Wins on a Monday, Superman's Unbeatable Rival, Green Lantern, Master Criminal of the 25th Century.
0: With unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts, call me terror man solomon grundy am co-host this time i am, am Lenos, the, Linus, the lexical, lexical archive of minutia, minutia expositions and origins goodbye me and bizarro so far, i am, I am libra. libra this is aya from the green lantern it is i the reverse flash which had ended with the destruction of the universe has it. Warrantunderation are we? I regret to say that you are my prisoner. Without our interspatial time conveyor, we are all essentially trapped here. Can't summon the willpower necessary for my power ring to pull me free. For nearly two decades I had carried her ghost within my heart. Experience the wonder. Great wings of mercury! of an all-new season. Solomon Grundy, a fat little pointy-eared man before. Let us get back to the story, shall we? Down, down, and approach. Of the Done and One Wonders Podcast, Podcast Wonder, Wonder Show. Show. Only on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Allow me, Entity Terror man That does it. They ain't messing with no timing lines ever again.
1: Incoming subspace transmissions. In Star Trek news, well, the big one is that Patrick Stewart himself put out a statement last week about returning to the role of Jean-Luc Picard for a new CBS All Access series. He stressed that Picard might not be a captain anymore, that he'd be someone who was changed by the years that have passed. But... If he was seduced back into the fold, I think we can expect good things from this project. Stay tuned for more as we get closer to production. San Diego Comic-Con also announced a new Star Trek Discovery companion series for CBS All Access. It's called Star Trek Short Treks. These four 10 to 10-15 minute monthly episodes are due to air starting in September and are standalone stories featuring Discovery characters. The backstories of Saru and Tilly are to be explored and Rain Wilson is set to direct a Harry mud episode. Renowned author Michael Chabon will also script one of these. Wow. <laughs> Discovery casting news. Rebecca Ramjan will play the original Trek pilot's number one, originally incarnated by Majel Barrett in The Cage. So I guess... We're seeing more than just Captain Pike in Season 2. I guess we haven't spoken since the new trailer for that season came out three weeks ago? Uh, She's not in it, but the trailer implies the season's arc will be about retrieving Spock from some unknown part of the galaxy, and only Discovery and its spore drive can get Captain Pike there. And then the the trailer spins out into material you might expect from the Orville, pushing the comedy a lot more than the often dour first season. I'm all for it. The first season, by the way, is coming to DVD and Blu-ray on November 13th. So, if you've been missing out because you don't subscribe to the proper service, depending on your region, you'll be able to catch up this fall. (sharp) Do you play Star Trek Online? Me neither. But if you answered yes, there's a new Discovery-themed expansion set to drop. It will be set in the Federation-Klingon War, just after uh, Discovery's pilot, and uh, it features the voice talent of Mary Wiseman as Cadet Tilly. Age of Discovery, as it's called, premieres this fall. (sharp) And if it's the movies you're interested in, Simon Pegg has said that Star Trek IV will start production in 2019 and that Quentin Tarantino's Trek film is six years away. Take from that what you will. On to your feedback about episode 23. We talked uh, about Bedside Manor and the different uh, doctors in the Star Trek universe uh, with Mike Peacock. So uh, Jeff R. is the first to speak out. He says, I'll add... To the criteria, a discussion of ethics, an area where Bashir excelled, but the EMH goes above and beyond, forcing Janeway to lobotomize him before becoming an accomplice to the vicious and cold-blooded murder of Tuvix. And after the other extreme, there's Phlox's glib endorsement of genocide by inaction. Anyhow, while I'd pick the EMH, I'd rather assemble a team. EMH on emergency, bones on surgery, crusher on medicine, specialists uh, is Bashir, pediatrics from Flocks, administration by Pulaski... And OBGYN <laughs> wharf a reference to the episode disaster. Uh, Rob Kelly says if if there are more Trek shows in the works, why not a medical center type show? But of course, these doctors would be facing all sorts of crazy off world diseases and ethical conflicts we cannot yet imagine. Are bodies different after beaming? Is it against the Hippocratic Oath to euthanize an evil twin made from a transporter malfunction? Are there even chronic diseases anymore? What has that done to planetary populations? Mike is always fun to listen to, nice to hear him on the show, and congrats on the new kitty. Max Trevor says, Yes, hospital shows are like weeds on TV, so why not a Star Trek hospital show in space? <laughs> this was yet another fascinating episode. I really enjoyed the show's freedom to explore Trek from so many different angles. An anonymous comment here. He says, Best to worst, Hollow Doctor, Phlox, Bashir, Mbenga, Redshirt Doctor in the pilot of Voyager, McCoy, Pulaski, and finally, Crusher. It's hard to rate them in terms of actual skill. They're all exactly as talented as the plot calls for, so it's mostly a matter of who I could best deal with. And an actual doctor, says he'd have to actually split this up into two different categories. Who would he want as his doctor, and who would he want to work with as a doctor? Uh, Those are two very different things, he says, the latter in particular, because I am coming at it from an ER viewpoint. Uh, Bones, he's the guy that I would want to work with most as a doctor. The man gets stuff done. There's a passion to him that drives him. He's committed to helping his patients, but he isn't one to mull over a decision. He is able to think on his feet and be instinctive in his medicine. I think of his patching up the horda with cement, for example. You need that. I also think that he has a healthy set of cynicism as well as compassion, meaning that as an overworked or stressed out co-worker, he could help you with a laugh or an eye roll. I don't know I would want him as my doctor for that same emotional cynicism and compassion. He is the guy that would roll his eyes if I was saying I was in agony over something he might think isn't agony. I think he would call out his patients for anything that they did to self inflict an injury or illness, and I think that compassion might make it hard for him to be clinical if he was emotionally close to someone. I wouldn't mind seeing him in an ER setting. I'd get the right stuff done. But as a primary provider, I think he might be too blunt. Crusher, I would want her as my doctor. I think she is very thoughtful. She seems to be one to very elegantly and painstakingly think about every decision about a patient. There is something of a professional wall between her and her patients, it seems. She wouldn't make a decision based on a personal connection. She is very clinical. As a patient, I might feel she is cold, but I would see pictures of her dancing or a stack of playbills on her desk or other artistic souvenirs that would let me know that she has good work-life balance. I know she will have thought about my case from every angle before coming up with a plan as a result of that medical rumination. I wouldn't want to work with her in the emergency department. I fear she would take a long time to make critical decisions as she weighed every risk and benefit over and over in her mind. I don't know if she would see people efficiently in that way. Your sickest patient might be in the waiting room. You need to make quick measured medical decisions. I don't know if the first adjective would fit her. Pulaski, she's sort of a muted version of the best of Bones and the best of Crusher. I think if I was working with her or seeing her, I'd shrug and say, I can deal. Bashir, I would neither want to see him as a patient or work with him as a colleague. As you say, he's probably best suited to research. Sometimes that means they are more used to working in a lab environment than a clinical one. Sometimes it means they don't interact with others medically, so bedside manner is tilted. Oftentimes, they aren't used to a hectic clinical pace because they are used to the laborious and careful rigors of research medicine. And I think Bashir is someone who would come off as arrogant, a smart guy who knows he's the smartest guy in the room, even medically, but can't apply that medicine to getting work done efficiently. He's the expert. Uh, Jenny says, I came here to make my argument as to why I feel Crusher is the best all around, but Ange's assessment is awesome. I can see why a healthcare practitioner would probably want to work with bones versus the others. Additionally, uh, through working in medical publishing, where I interact with medical research scientists, I can also see why Bashir would be better suited for this area versus clinical practice. Crusher is the one I would prefer to see as a patient, so who's to say which doctor is best? It seems it depends on why you need a doctor. Brian Linton says, while I'm not a medical doctor, I am a biologist and spend a lot of time in and out of class with pre-med students as an undergrad. I noticed that, in general, most pre-med students primarily entered the field because they either loved the scientific aspects of medicine or because they loved helping people. Not to say that a doctor who loves science doesn't want to help people or that a doctor who loves helping people can't learn the science. But I wonder how much these two general motivations affect a medical student's choice to pursue research or a highly specialized field of medicine versus a more generalized Practice of Medicine. I imagine that Dr. Bashir falls more into the Love of Science camp, whereas Dr. McCoy might fall more into the Love's Helping People camp. If I had to pick one of the Star Trek doctors to be my GP, it would be Dr. Crusher. She's competent, professional, and courteous. I don't mind her being a little cold and clinical, because I don't necessarily want to sit around drinking Romulan ale with my doctor, not to mention that I tend towards the cold and clinical myself. Above all else, I like that she isn't condescending or patronizing. I have had that experience with a particularly patronizing doctor, where I felt the need to explain that I do hold a PhD in biology, and he, she didn't need to talk down to me like a child. For the record, the patronizing doctor was not Dr. Ange. Chris Franklin says I would pick bones as a friend and crusher. As my doctor, which actually fits their primary functions on their respective shows. My first year in college, I got a summer job at the factory my dad worked at. I went to the clinic in the big city to get my physical done and was very nervous. The doctor who walked in was a very attractive female who looked a lot like a slightly younger Beverly Crusher or Gates McFadden. And this was when TNG was still on the air. My first real cough test, yes, that one, was an emotional roller coaster. For sure. Uh, Tim Price says uh, the episode was enjoyable and uh, that he is definitely jealous of Star Trek medicine, tricorders, instant full body scans, lead shielding not needed, non-invasive procedures. Uh, My aging, aching joints would use these. Thankfully, we get more and more into the future every day, so who knows? Chris Lewis, also a doctor, a professional family doctor, and a casual Star Trek fan. He says, so like Ange, he has thoughts. Uh, As with doctors in real life, all of the Trek medical characters display a range of characteristics, but for TV and storytelling purposes, one side of their nature tends to be exaggerated. Giving the show the title of Bedside Manor does skew the discussion away from those characters who are less warm than others, and doctors need a range of skills to perform at their best. McCoy is certainly a passionate advocate for his patients, human or otherwise. I agree with Ange that, for all of McCoy's reminders, that he is a doctor and not a mechanic, engineer, magician, bricklayer, or physicist, he does have a pragmatic approach, occasionally bordering on the unorthodox, to treating his patients. It feels strange to say about a doctor practicing 350 years in our future, Uh, but McCoy's old world folksy way does give me pause to consider if he's completely up to date in his medicine. If I dropped in on a house call to bring a bottle of booze to a patient, I'd risk getting struck off. I wonder to what extent his old country doctor manner comes from the wagon train in space pitch for the series. I think it totally does, Chris. He goes on, he says, I think of Beverly as a great department head. She's certainly not afraid to get her hands dirty with some practical clinical work, but a lot of the time she's managing a large team in Sigbay and taking strategic decisions balancing medical priorities against the ship's mission. Obviously these have to conflict or there's no story. With her family and various side hobbies, she's probably one of the more well-rounded of the medical characters, but she does have a worrying tendency to become romantically entangled with ex and future patients. Fortunately, they always leave or die or evolve into a higher state of consciousness, saving her from some awkward moments in 10 Forward. Pulaski is, to me, a consummate scientist, She quickly forms theories, but is prepared to reject her hypothesis when new evidence calls it into question. She's not afraid of putting herself at risk to conduct experiments to inform her reasoning. She might not be the warmest of the clinicians, but I like her commitment to evidence-based practice. Bashir is one of those rare doctors who is an absolute genius. Sadly, that comes with a huge ego, sense of infallibility, and a lack of insight into his practice. He's cocky and expects that his talents uh, in one area extend to all areas e.g. why shouldn't he be the perfect spy? I think Garrick uh, sees that arrogance and plays him like a cheap fiddle. Whilst Julian might be trying to push back the frontiers of medicine, I fear he might have trouble knowing when he's at risk of going too far. For all his brilliance, he's the doctor I'd be most worried about. His friendship with O'Brien does ground him to an extent, but like Ange, I don't think I'd like to work with Bashir or be treated by him. Voyager's doctor! is like a medical student or junior doctor in training. He has a head stuffed full of facts and information, but little idea of how to implement them to practice on real patients. As a result, he comes off as harsh and uncaring, at least that's how it appears in the first season. As with real junior doctors, he evolves his style of practice, either by making mistakes or by downloading another terraquad of data into his programming, if only all learning could be that straightforward, so that by the end of the show, he's a fully functioning clinician, exceeding all the original parameters and expectations of his program. I like Voyager for taking these bold approaches to long-term character development, and I think you're too harsh on the show as a whole. Uh, Phlox is the Star Trek doctor I think I'd most like to see as a patient. Ooh, um, unpopular opinion. He says, I don't doubt his knowledge... He's clearly very well-read on both alien and human medicines. He comes across as compassionate, gently humorous, and holistic. I can look past the odd menagerie of complementary therapies he maintains. Weirdly, for the only alien doctor, he comes across as one of the most human, humanitarian, and humane. So, in summary, Phlox is my GP, Beverly is my hospital consultant. He also mentions the medical tricorder X Prize. Uh, that is constantly running. Uh, a medical tricorder would make my life so much easier. I actually bought a Scanadu device off Kickstarter. It was pretty natty, could measure pulse temperature and blood pressure by touching the sensor to your forehead. Sadly, it didn't make the X Prize cut and support was turned off last year. Maybe something similar will arrive before the end of my career. If you're an engineer out there and you're making Tricorders, uh, you probably already know about this uh, this prize that's being offered. Just look at Tricorder XPRIZE on Wikipedia. And finally, Ice D says, I attended the Shoreleaf Science Fiction Convention and one of the various panelists, Lorenzo Hurd, said he had pitched a medical center type show to Paramount in the early 2000s. So that idea is floating out there. Let's just get through some uh, Facebook likes and shares now from Abel Padilla, Brian Linton, Brian Rosen, Chris Franklin, Cinda Dallas Browning Nicholson, who would choose Dr. McCoy because he went to Old Miss, uh, but next would be Dr. Bashir, even though his uh, intelligence might make her fever rise. Uh, who else? Clinton Robinson of Coffee Comics, Derek William Crabb, Jared West, Jay Ferguson, who prefers the EMH, Gene L. Matthews... Max Romero, Mike Lacroix, who picks uh, Leonard McCoy, Mike Peacock, Rob Kelly, Shag Matthews, and Sean Strawbridge on Google Plus. Thank you, The Hammer Strikes. And on Twitter, retweets and favorites from Between the Pages, Chris, Chris Lewis, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffin Comics, Comic Reflections, Dr. G Nerdologist, Earth 2 Chris, Gordon Tolton, Holkoff, The Irredeemable Shag of Firestorm Fan, Jeffrey Brown, Justice Strike, The Podcast, Justice's First Dawn, Max Romero of It's Plastic Man, Motu Cast, Peyton Pressgrove, Podcast Partners, Rob Kelly, Creative of cast Film & Water Podcast, host of Sads Pod Dillon, Superman, Movie Minute, Treasury Comics, Mountain Comics, and Mashcast, Scott X, The 108th Sage, The Mirror Factory, Tim Price, Trekonomics, Trekbot, we welcome our robot overlords, man 51 Uncle Sam, and Willie Yarbrough. As usual, let me remind you that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on the Fire & Water Facebook page or on Twitter with the hashtag Podcasts Until the next episode, this is Siskoid reminding you to go boldly.